you for joining us today at Renovatus, a church for people under renovation. If you have a prayer need, would like to talk with a pastor, or want to share how this message impacts you, we would love to hear from you. Email us at info at renovatuschurch.com. If you desire to support us in the work we are doing for the kingdom of God in Charlotte, you can give online at renovatuschurch.com. We hope you are truly blessed by today's message. So as you return to your seats, uh, let's open our Bibles up to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. I heard the, uh, the beloved ladies had an amazing launch dinner last night. And uh, so that's awesome. I see several of them here that I know worked very hard to actually pull that off. So kudos to y'all for uh, showing up to church on Sunday morning after, after all that work. I'm so glad that you're here. We're going to start a new series this morning. I didn't announce it last week because I was still on the fence um, about what to do about the James series with Hurricane Florence kind of throwing us off rhythm. I really, really wanted to jump right into this series, though, because I've been looking forward to it. Uh, I've been looking forward to, uh, to this morning, um, for one, getting it over with, um, and then uh, for the rest of the month, looking at some much more favorite passages of mine in this particular chapter. But you know what? This is, this is the, the beauty of the lectionary. The lectionary certainly has its shortcomings. The beauty of it is, is that once you decide to go a certain direction with it, you kind of have to work through some of these more difficult passages, right? And so as a preacher, it's good. Um, even last week, the James passage we did last week was a difficult passage. And I ended up getting several questions through the week from folks who, uh, who heard the sermon and wanted clarification on things. And so I just want to say, you know, any time, you know, we're covering these very difficult passages, or any passage for that matter, um, I love discussing them. I love dialoguing about them. Anyone who's who's contacted me about a sermon, I hope you've got the impression that I love that kind of stuff. I think that, honestly, Scripture is best understood in community. And that is one of the shortcomings of preaching even, right? I mean, to some degree, preaching is a bit of a narcissistic exercise. Um, It's me standing up here telling you what I think the text says. So uh, at any rate, I think that's all the disclaimers I need to give as we jump into this. But the flip series um, comes from our lectionary readings from Mark chapter 10, which go through the month of October. This is one of the great things about lectionary this month, is that it actually does follow one solid chapter out of the Bible, uh, verse for verse. Um, So uh, each of these stories in Mark chapter 10, and I'm going to talk a little bit about them later, all the stories, but there are four stories in Mark chapter 10, and within every story, you will find an example where Jesus challenges the status quo by flipping the current social structure, flipping the certain religious ideals, uh, flipping someone's social status, uh, actually flipping someone's social status, uh, this is the final sermon, Blind Bartimaeus. His, he goes from a poor beggar uh, to one who can see. Um, and, and so this is a theme throughout Mark chapter 10. It comes on the heels of Mark chapter 9, actually. And some of you will remember way back when, I don't even remember if I was pastor here or not, um, I preached on, I, I preached two Palm Sundays, but one Palm Sunday was from Mark. And on that Palm Sunday, I made, I made a reference to the fact that what we see here are Jesus and his disciples on pilgrimage from the Mount of Transfiguration to Jerusalem. They're traveling. And this, this actually can be corro- corroborated with uh, Matthew's account 
Matthew's account in particular, because Matthew actually does a little better job of naming the locations where they're at and where these events happen. Like, for instance, blind Bartimaeus is on the road between Jericho and Jerusalem, which shows that Jesus is definitely south of Galilee. So um, we have this pilgrimage that Jesus is taking his disciples on. And within the Gospel of Mark itself, um, the disciples are always messing things up. And, 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 and Mark is trying to, in the Gospel, is trying to help us understand what true discipleship looks like. And sometimes his disciples aren't the best examples of it. And he uses that as a way to teach. Because remember, Mark is, uh, is written around 70 AD, either around the time the temple falls or shortly thereafter. Mark is written. And so it's written to these believers that are holding all those things in tension, right? Like uh, the, te the teachings of Jesus, trying to understand where they fit in a world where social upheaval is taking place, uh, where there is an apocalypse occurring, where the world as they have known it is ceasing to exist. And, uh, you know, I draw this parallel a lot, and I just continue to believe it. I feel like we are living in apocalyptic times. I feel like in many ways, no matter what generation you're from, you're finding it harder and harder to figure out where the world you've known is and what is this strange new world we find ourselves in. And uh, for those who've lived longer, you've maybe had that uh, throughout your life, seasons where you've seen this kind of, um, this kind of social upheaval, this kind of uh, new way of thinking, new way of being, new way of, new way of living. So Mark is, Mark is very applicable to us um, in, in that regard. And so this text today falls within that trajectory, and this series falls within that trajectory, and we're going to be looking at four lessons where Jesus turns or flips the world upside down, all right? So having that in mind, our passage this morning is one of those passages that is, uh, has lots of dynamics to it. There's all sorts of aspects that we could go at this passage. But this morning, I want to focus in on, I want to hone in on, the ways in which Jesus flips the script in this particular reading, okay? So let's dive in. Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 2. Some Pharisees came, and to test him they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her. But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment for you. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Then, in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. There's a house in Mark. We don't know whose it is. Uh, yeah, there's a house theme throughout Mark. And I actually did some research when I was in school. I, I wrote, wrote a paper on the house theme. Uh, some houses are noted. Peter's house is noted. Jesus goes to Peter's house in Mark. So some people believe it's always Peter's house. Whoever it is, they've had some roof repairs done by this point um, because earlier they tore the roof off and lowered someone down into the house. <clears throat> he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. If she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. 
Let me say here an asterisk. I believe adultery is like idolatry. It takes a lot of different forms, right? Idolatry is not always necessarily bowing before an idol and praying prayers to it. A lot of things can become idols in our lives, and we can cheat on our spouses with a lot of things, right? Um, so I think that we need to understand a more comprehensive view of what Jesus is talking about here. In fact, Jesus even strikes, strikes to that every time he talks about these issues. In, in Mark chapter 9, whenever talking about lust and desire, you know, he goes all out. It's like, just pull your eyes out and cut your hands off if that's what it takes, you know. Um, because it goes deeper than just these little things we do. You know, Jesus says in, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, you know, you, you say, talking about adultery, but I tell you that even if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery. So in your heart. So Jesus is getting to the heart of the matter, and it's unfaithfulness. And unfaithfulness takes many forms, right? So that's just my little asterisk there. Verse 13. And people were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them, and the disciples spoke, that in order that he might touch them. And the disciples spoke sternly to them. But when Jesus saw this, he was angry, indignant, and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not stop them. For it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. And he took them up in his arms and laid his hands on them and blessed them. Did anyone else's anxiety raise, rise during that reading? Did your blood pressure drop a few notches when the text finally started talking about children and God's love, acceptance, and God's blessing of them? I can tell you as a pastor, my anxiety always raises whenever I get these kind of questions. And this is one of them, right? Like there's always these questions that we get as pastors about what is right and what is wrong that always makes my anxiety go up. I always feel like when I get questions like this, there's no good answer. And that even if there is a good answer, I won't articulate it properly. And I'll send the wrong impression. I carry that burden this morning even. I sometimes fear that I won't know how to answer questions like this in a way that reflects God's love and grace. Sometimes I fear that in my answering of difficult questions like this, uh, that I will bring more harm than good to those most affected by the hypothetical situations being proposed. In fact, after a lifetime of, dedica of dedication to studying and trying to understand the scriptures and even preaching them, this particular passage and all of its various iterations in the New Testament still leaves me feeling some kind of way after I've read it. That's my way of saying I don't know how I feel about it, so y'all know. My wife hates that saying. Because I'm like, I don't know, it just makes me feel some kind of way. And she's like, well, what way? And I'm like, I don't know, just some kind of way. <laughs> All right? Y'all know what I'm talking about? You ever felt some kind of way about something? You're like, can't put my finger on it, but just don't like it. I was thinking this week why that might be. And perhaps... I have this trigger because I come from a family where both of my parents have had previous marriages. I come from a blended family. My father was married before he met my mother and they got married. My mother was married to another man before she met my father and they got married. They had children, or my mom had children from her previous marriage. 
who were my sisters. Um, and I remember as a child hearing them talk about um, times when their faith was challenged because of their marital history. Now, Dad came from a fundamentalist Baptist background. And so uh, his family would often raise the question at family gatherings. I remember distinctly, I was probably nine years old at the time. I remember a family gathering. It was either Thanksgiving or Christmas or a family reunion. I don't remember. Where we were sitting around the table and one of his aunts brought it up. You know, Steve, do you still believe you can go to heaven after being divorced and remarried? Do they let, really let you teach Sunday school in that church you go to? My mom left, crying, not because she was sad, but because she was angry. She's an angry crier. And this wasn't the only time it came up in our home. We would sometimes have the occasional pastor or traveling preacher, who even though my mom and dad were very actively involved in the church, would take the chances that they had from the pulpit to make sure that they railed against divorce, and especially divorce and remarriage. In fact, every time our little church faced a pastoral change, I remember that being a topic of discussion in my home. I wonder if they'll send us a preacher that will allow us to work in the church since we have been divorced and remarried. I distinctly remember this being one thing about church that left me so confused as a child. It turned me off to church actually a little bit as a child. My parents were what we called spirit-filled in my Pentecostal church. They were active in the church. I saw their prayer life. I saw their pursuits of holiness at home. They both used their spiritual gifts to edify the local church. They worked at the church as much as I, I felt like as much as they worked their jobs. They were committed to the church and to faith and to doctrine and to their family. They loved God and they loved one another. They were charitable. And they loved me. And I always thought, why are these preachers challenging their walk with God? Based on history that, as a child, I didn't really fully even understand. As I grew into adolescence, now looking back, I see how that is one of the things, one of the cognitive dissonances I saw in church that really pushed me away from Jesus as a child. Pushed me away from wanting to be part of the church. Because I didn't understand why there was such strong condemnation for my parents. Who both, and I knew some of their history as I got older. Who both left very bad marriages. To have what they have today. And maybe that's why the beginning of Mark chapter 10 triggers me. Maybe some of you have similar stories. Similar experiences. And this passage and passages like it are triggers to you as well. So before we start to even reflect theologically on this passage this morning, I want to highlight some important historical and contextual factors that will help guide us as we reflect on this text. And in particular, I want to highlight the historical and contextual factors that lead into Jesus' flipping the script and welcoming children when his disciples say children should be left outside because they live in a culture where children are to be seen and not heard, right? 
I mean, culture-wise, in Roman and in Jewish culture, children are kind of bottom of the totem pole, right, in the first century, under women, and women are under men even. And so there is this sort of social structure that's in place, and we see that reflected in the disciples' attitude towards these children. They sternly tell the children, don't come in. So what are some contextual and historical observations that will help us unpack the nature of what Jesus might be flipping in this particular story. The first thing I want you to note is that this is not a heartfelt question. This is a question asked by a group of religious leaders with a very specific purpose, and that is to challenge or to test Jesus. Chapter 10, as I stated earlier, falls between the transfiguration in chapter 9 and the entrance to Jerusalem in chapter 11. And in between here, Mark starts to give some lessons on discipleship. Chapter 9, he does it through a series of teachings. And in chapter 10 here, he takes four instances, Mark does, takes four instances where Jesus showed that being a disciple or being a follower of him would flip everything upside down. We might say that being a kingdom disciple means living right side up in an upside down world. And Jesus does this through four, Mark does this by telling four stories in which Jesus flipped the script. The first one is this morning in which I'm going to propose children and women are empowered by Jesus' responses and actions to a question meant to divide and to challenge. The second story is the story of a rich man who is told that if he wants to inherit the kingdom, he must become poor. The third story is the story of James and John who compete for who is the greatest in the kingdom and Jesus teaches them that the least of these are the greatest in the kingdom. And then finally in Mark 10 is the story of one born blind who Jesus heals And he sees, but the funny thing is in that story is that those who see are actually the ones who are blind. They don't see the whole picture. And it is within this section of flipped narratives where we find our reading today. There are some other things to consider here, contextually and historically. First of all, Divorce was already a reality in Jewish religious law. This was something that uh, the Pharisees aren't asking necessarily Jesus to give permission for divorce. What they are asking is for Jesus to clarify when a man has the right to divorce his wife, to which all the women in the room are already picking up on something, hopefully. Uh, Their question is very telling in the way they understand this. Because biblically, and according to the Mishnah, it was only the husband who had the power to initiate divorce. The woman really didn't. And this wasn't true just in Jewish religious law. This was also true traditionally in in the Greco-Roman world up until around the turn of the first century, where we begin to see a change in the way marriage is viewed and the way that the woman's role in marriage is viewed. It was a very... uh, Progressive movement even among women of the first century in the Roman world. Adultery was the primary factor for 
divorce biblically and by the law. But adultery was really only something that applied to women. Men had much larger boundaries than what was considered adultery and what wasn't. According to the Mishnah, a woman speaking so loudly to her husband that another man hears her might be considered adultery. It was actually grounds for divorce, just so you know. Also, burning their bread on a consistent basis was grounds for divorce in the Mishnah. So maybe women did have a little more control. Just burn the dinner every night and he'll do it. I don't know. The Old Testament made provision for men to be intimate with their female servants, their concubines, their other wives, and even women who were part of a conquered nation or tribe. In the shadow of that pervasive Jewish tradition, which gave nearly all the power to create and dissolve a marriage to men, was, as I stated just a moment ago, the Reformation that was happening in the Greco-Roman world. We have documents from the first century showing where women were denying their father's right to choose their husband and instead were taking them to court to get the right to marry the men they loved. And they were winning. Women in this time were filing for their own divorces. We have ancient records of women filing for their own divorces. And these changes in the ways in which marriage had traditionally been viewed, because there's always in every culture been a traditional view of marriage and the norms that are changing, this had led to a change in the way that some Jewish teachers were now considering marriages. You had rabbis that were still holding on to the more traditional views, and you also had rabbis that were embracing the newer views, which were coming mainly from the Greco-Roman world, but had a great influence on the Jewish culture of that time. This is why the Pharisees were asking the question. I don't think they really cared about people's souls as much as they cared about finding which side Jesus was on. Was Jesus a rabbi from the old traditional school? Or was Jesus a rabbi from the more modern, progressive Roman, Greco-Roman school? And so Jesus then answers these questions, um, answers this question by doing a few things. As often when Jesus is tested with a controversial subject, he answers by going deeper into the matter than the question allows. For instance, here, when he asks, is asked about the grounds for divorce, and notice it's a man's ground for divorce, he does two things. First of all, he reminds them that the institution of divorce itself in Jewish law was in response to their own hardness of heart. That the very thing they're asking about, the very law they're asking about, was predicated, existed, not because it was ever part of God's will, but that it was in response to the hardness of their own hearts. And when he responds, he responds not to the grounds for divorce, but to the intention of marriage. And notice how he does it. He puts the responsibility on the man. Therefore, the man shall leave. In divorce, the woman is the one leaving. But Jesus doesn't go to talk about grounds for divorce. He comes back to the intention of marriage and says, the man is the one who traditionally leaves his mother and father. 
and cleaves unto his wife. A little joke here. I was actually doing a wedding once, and I misquoted the scripture. And I said, therefore, a man shall leave his wife and cleave unto his mother. I stopped and asked forgiveness. I don't know that I was ever forgiven. I don't know. So Jesus is much, Jesus as usual here, is much less concerned with what is permissible and more concerned with what is intended. This is Jesus' guiding hermeneutic of the Old Testament throughout the Gospels. When asked about these questions of what is permissible and what is not, Jesus dives deeper into God's intentions for the thing in the first place. This is his hermeneutic. Spirit over law, people over letters, grace over verdicts. We see this reflected also in the writing of the apostles in their letters. But of course, the disciples, being raised in a very religious culture, uh, they didn't like Jesus' answers. Right? They didn't like it. Much like you last week, some of you who left with more questions than I provided answers for, this is how they felt. And they get back to the house and they go, man, I didn't really like Jesus' answer to that question. Let's push him on a little harder and see what he says. And so they push him a little further to get deeper into, uh, into what he means. So they're in a house now where families actually live and children are around and the disciples are still curious as to what Jesus meant. But this time when Jesus answers in the house, notice what he says. He refers to adultery as being something that would cause a man to divorce his wife. But he also empowers women. Unlike the Pharisees who said, how does a man divorce his wife? Jesus gives instructions on how a man might, or on why a man might divorce his wife, but also instructions on why a wife might divorce her husband. It's kind of radical when you think about it in his setting, what he was doing here. He was challenging these traditional norms. He was giving an answer to a question that was not asked, but should have been asked. See, marriage norms and traditions, like most, like most social institutions, change over time and through cultures. That's why I always cringe when someone says, we just need to get back to biblical marriage. I'm like, ooh, do you really want to do that? If you have an unattractive sister-in-law, you do not want to go back to that. Amen. Right? And even, those, even though those things change, the reality of people's shame and hurt and confusion about their marriages and relationships remain real. By the way, let me say to that also, if you're a woman and you've got an unattractive brother-in-law, you should be just as thankful. And even though those things change, and the, and the reality of people's shame and hurt and confusion about their marriages and relationships remain real. And that is what Jesus is most concerned about. We don't need God to tell us that divorce isn't great. Right? We don't need God or Jesus to tell us that divorce isn't isn't bad and isn't hurtful and, and isn't painful and doesn't do some type of collateral damage to our lives and to our families. It, it always leaves its mark. 
even in my family, as good as my new family was, the remnants of those hurts certainly carried over into our family dynamic. But what we do need to know is where God is at in the midst of all that brokenness. Whether it be in our relationships or whether it be elsewhere. And that answer is provided in this text. God is on the side of the most vulnerable, like children. God is on the side of the hurting. God is on the side of those who have been cheated. God is on the side of those who have been done wrong. God is on the side of those who are most at risk. And this is no more clear than in the final story of our reading this morning, where children who are on the lowest part of the social structure, uh, lowest piece of the social structure in that society, and who even the disciples felt weren't worthy enough to be bothering Jesus, they shouldn't be doing it. I love, you know, Mark is, is emphatic here in the way that they did. It's almost like a screaming match. The disciples sternly rebuke the children, and then Jesus angrily rebukes the disciples, which he does a lot in Mark. He's like always mad at them, poor guys. He's very indignant with them. He's very upset with them. And he calls the children to himself, holds them, blesses them, touches them, and then uses them as an example. In chapter 9, we see this Jesus telling his disciples to beware of those who put a stumbling block in front of the little ones. You know, stumbling blocks like sending the message that their parents aren't good enough because they've had divorce and remarriage. Things like that. Worrying more about what is permissible than what matters. Worrying more about rules than the people. You see, religious folks will always be consumed with questions about who's in and who's out. Whose marriage is valid and whose isn't. What is permissible and what is not. But, what, but God will always be somewhere in the margins. Somewhere in the grace, somewhere in the nuance, somewhere in the flesh and blood of the questions. That's why the incarnation is so important. Somewhere in the flesh and blood of the questions is where Jesus will be. Somewhere in the midst of all of that, touching, blessing, accepting, forgiving, and discipling. Religious folk will always want to know what side you're on. They need lines, they need labels, they need demarcation. They need to know where you stand on an issue. They need their walls, they need their heretics, they need their enemies. But Jesus will be where there are no enemies. Because all are worthy of love. All are worthy of forgiveness. All are worthy of acceptance. You see, we Americans don't like this at all. We, we don't even like soccer because it can end in a tie. Um, but Jesus flips our world upside down. He calls us into a kingdom where grace abounds, where there are no winners and losers, where the score is always tied, and where we are all in desperate need of God's grace to ease our shame and to bring comfort to our anxieties. 
this text is a prime example of what it looks like when powerful men wrestled with the technicalities of the law in order that they might maintain a system that most benefits them. But Jesus turned his language and his eyes towards the least of the society. Those most affected by a world polluted by patriarchy gone wild. The women and the children. Not only did he accept and touch and bless the children, but he set them up as exemplary figures of what a disciple of the kingdom of God looks like. These are the ones who enter the kingdom of heaven. These are the ones who enter the kingdom of God. Like children, we are all invited. And this morning, we're going to practice that invitation by doing what we do every week and coming to the table. Will you stand with me? If our musicians will come, please. Our servers too in just a moment. Oh, Father God, I want to thank you. Um, I want to thank you for your grace, first of all, God, because we certainly need it in working through passages like this. And God, I'm sure there's all kind of triggers and difficulties and things we're hearing and not wanting to hear in this passage. Um, but God, I pray that you would help us. Help us in the midst of all of this to discern the heart of Jesus. To discern the heart of God. To discern the heart of Christ. Father, help us as a church to be the kind of people that don't fall into the traps of divisive fundamentalism that seeks more to know who's in and who's out and where we should draw the lines than we do on how to open our arms, how to learn from one another, how to hear from one another, how to bear one another's burdens, God. Help us to be the kind of community that does those things. Help us to be the kind of community that cares more about individuals than the things that torment them and haunt them and grieve them today. Help us to be those that seek healing and wholeness for ourselves, for our world, and those that religious folk have hurt. Those that religious institutions have hurt, God. Help us again, God, to turn our eyes to those most affected by sinful systems gone bad. Help us to be more concerned with our ethic. Help us to be more concerned with your intentions 
than we are with just checking off our list of rules. In Jesus' name, amen. Servers, if you'll come, we'll read the invitation together. If you're a guest with us this morning, we invite you to receive communion with us. We all come like children to our Father's table and are fed. If you don't want to receive communion, that's fine. We will also have prayer partners on either side of the front here. So if you like prayer, you can come up and get prayer. If you're receiving communion and still want prayer, you can receive communion. Go receive prayer. Let's read the invitation together. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed. Come, because it's the Lord who invites you and it is his will that those who want him should meet him here. Thank you again for joining us. We invite you to send your requests and stories to info at renovatuschurch.com and give by visiting our website, renovatuschurch.com. As we close every service at Renovatus, would you join me in praying the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.